From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, Boris Johnson is returning to his domestic agenda today. At least he's trying to. He's committing to boosting UK offshore wind power as part of his delayed plan for a green industrial revolution. Now, it begins with £160 million of infrastructure spending to support companies building turbines off the British coast. In his own words, as Saudi Arabia is to oil, the UK is to wind. I like that line. It's not that windy here, is it? I mean, it has been recently, but Saudi Arabia oil? I don't know. Anyway, the virus trouble's also never far behind, unfortunately for the government and for all of us, I suppose. Almost 8,000 people who uh, had their tests left off those official records because of the technical issues, largely involving Microsoft Excel, we've since learnt, still haven't been contacted by the test and trace system, at least by the end of yesterday. So that problem has not been resolved yet. And then we had the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, doing the rounds this morning. He was forced to reject the idea that Eat Out to Help Out had helped to spread the virus over the summer, which was something that Boris Johnson alluded to a couple of days ago. Yes, I think perhaps the relation between the two neighbours in Downing Street may not be perhaps what it was. Who knows? Uh, But let's talk about all this with Anna McMorrin, who's Labour MP for Cardiff North. Anna, welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for being with us. First of all, that government plan for wind power, I mean, is something on the surface at least sounds to be green, sounds to be the kind of thing Labour's uh, 2019 manifesto, which of course included a commitment to build 9,000 new wind turbines, might get behind. So this could be a cross-party winner. Look, any announcement that is going to mean investment in renewables, in building back greener, uh, is absolutely welcome. Uh, We're facing a climate emergency. We need it. But, you know, I've long argued and campaigned for more renewables. And we've heard announcement after announcement from this government and, in fact, this prime minister. We haven't seen delivery. We've yet to see delivery on on any of this. Uh, This is just a drop in the ocean. Now, I want to see that happen and I welcome the announcement. But let's hope this is not just more empty rhetoric, words, not action. But, but the fact remains, Anna, that when you strip away Brexit, when you strip away the virus and look at the, the levelling up agenda, as the government calls it, it, it's not a million miles away from where Labour wants to be, is it? Look, we want 
to see uh, uh, building back greener. We want to see improvement. But let's face it, this, this is just a distraction from the absolute disaster that this government is, is uh, heading towards and is now currently in during this COVID crisis. They, they are in absolute shambles. We've seen that yesterday uh, with, with the lack of public confidence, the fiasco with the public tests, uh, nearly 50,000 people uh, not traced. They're failing on the basics. So, you know, an announcement, yes, on wind, wind power, on renewables, that's hugely welcome. But is this just a distraction? Is this just empty rhetoric? I want to see actual delivery. But more than that, I want to see leadership. We are in the most serious pandemic uh, in a century, in over a century. Families are facing huge, huge challenges. People are losing lives, loved ones. This is incredibly serious. We need to see that serious action from this government. And we're not seeing that kind of leadership. Okay, well, look, more widely, what about what's happened with the track and trace system? I mean, there's been a lot of um, people saying that this is something that shows how the whole system is not working, is not fit for purpose. But actually, this is just a a matter of administration. I mean, any administration would find this quite hard to handle. It's a massive program. Uh, You kind of have to work with the teething problems rather than picking away at them, don't you? I mean, I don't, I would call this teething problems. This is 50,000, almost 50,000 people potentially not traced. They are failing on the basics. A total breakdown of something that should be fundamental, which leads to serious questions. And they have to, to have to answer those questions. They are currently putting lives at risk. So no, I wouldn't say these are teething problems at all. This is essentially, it's about leadership, but it's about putting in place the fundamentals and the basics to make this work, to to ensure that people who need to isolate are being told they need to isolate, uh, and we're not seeing that. It's a total breakdown. I mean, we, we've just seen, they've, they've talked about using outdated software. They knew about this in July. We're now in October. Why hasn't this been rectified by now and looking at the other ways the government is trying to tackle this pandemic one of them is the 10 p.m curfew it's had let's face it a mixed response we've got a vote on it uh later on is that something that you're going to be supporting look i think we want to ask we, we have supported it in the past but there's no doubt about it that uh we haven't seen proper scientific evidence resulting from the decision on the 10 p.m. curfew. I'm pleased that here in Wales, we have a 20-minute buffer, which means that people are not crowding out of the restaurants, bars, venues, uh, and and mingling, which we're seeing. We're seeing images across the country of people doing just that. And this is just another sign of the complete mess, the complete fiasco, the misinformation that this government is is spreading.
Yeah, uh, but given obviously you are in in Wales and you have different systems yeah. there and things that are handled. Some people think perhaps more in a more extreme way. And also we've had recently the suggestion just yesterday that perhaps people coming in from England into Wales might be yeah. restricted. Uh, is that really the way you want to go forward? I mean, it, it seems to put up barriers, even new borders perhaps, uh, where that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that. I've recently done a survey in my own constituency in Cardiff North uh, asking businesses and local constituents what they consider, how they consider the the actions of the Welsh government compared to the UK government. Overwhelmingly, they prefer the actions of the, the Welsh government. The clarity, the consistency, the very clear messaging, and the descriptions, and the, fundamentally basing this on scientific evidence. Because no one wants a lockdown. We want to prevent that second overall lockdown. We want to keep families together. That is our priority, and that's our priority here in Wales as well. But look, if we are not getting that consistency uh, from the UK government, we're not getting transparency, we're not getting clarity, we're losing... That, they, that government is losing public confidence day in, day out. And that's what we need to see. So absolutely, I'm pleased that the Welsh, Welsh Labour government here is taking it very seriously. And we're seeing, uh, as a result, people respond accordingly. But we need to see that from Johnson and the UK government too. Uh, if, if it's being handled well at a local level, at a, a regional level, does that not raise the argument for more devolution once all of this is over? Has this been a sort of test run for that? Look, I, I'm very concerned over the, the, um, the deal that's on the table at the moment that, that we saw the UK government put down uh, um, a bill and debate it. In, in the Commons a couple of weeks ago, rolling back devolution, taking away powers from devolved governments. That is, uh, that is absolutely, it would be disastrous for the country and it would be disastrous for people. Taking away standards, uh, services, the decision-making uh, powers from those who understand it closer to the people who actually use those. And that's what I'm very concerned about, and that's what I'm fighting for. And, and as a, a Labour and a Labour government in Wales, that's what we're fighting for. Anna, let me ask you very briefly, though, at the end, about uh, it seems to be a, a moment, perhaps, of lack of unity inside the Labour Party, in Parliament at least. 21 Labour MPs defying the whip to vote against the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill. Um, is Keir Starmer losing his grip a little? No, I don't think so at all. Um, it's a very serious issue, this bill, and uh, the discussions going on are that, and, and in fact have been widely shared by the Labour Party, that there are concerns over this bill. But those concerns need to be, uh, need to be seen and settled with amendments and at committee stage. We want the UK government to put this right. We want the UK government to be producing a bill that works. That's why we want to see this bill go to the next stage, and that's why we didn't support the bill yesterday. 
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at some of the other stories that are um, making the news today. And Roger, do you want to start us off, see what we got? Well, it's restrictions in Scotland is an interesting one. The cabinet there is considering tighter restrictions to stem the pandemic. Now, some government advisers have backed the idea of a circuit breaker. The National Clinical Director, Jason Leach, said the measure could push the course of the pandemic back by 28 days and buy time ahead of the winter. But the Chief Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister, I should say, suggested that further measures could be rolled out in the very near future. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, keep a close eye on that. And then we had an update from uh, the Holocaust Memorial that is uh, some people are trying to get built in Westminster. A former independent reviewer of terror laws has warned that these plans could create a trophy site for terrorists. This is Lord Carlisle, who spoke to a planning inquiry and said that the landmark is a self-evident terrorism risk. It's planned for uh, Victoria Tower Gardens, which I think is just opposite the Millbank buildings, the old uh, Conservative headquarters, all of that. Uh, the plan has been rejected in the past by the City Council, Westminster City Council, but the final decision is up to the government after this inquiry is over. And they've had a lot of support from MPs, from peers. More than 170 of them are backing it, and they include Robert Jenrick, the Housing Secretary, and the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. And also on the issue of immigration. Leading immigration lawyers have told The Guardian that increasingly hostile rhetoric from the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is putting them at risk of being attacked as well as undermining the legal system. Now, Priti Patel used a speech to the virtual Conservative conference course to launch an attack on human rights do-gooders, lefty lawyers... She claimed they were united with people traffickers in wanting to prevent reform of what she called the UK's broken asylum system. Well, the law society's written to the Home Office asking them to change the language that they're using. But separately, there have been leaked memos from her officials drawing ridicule, mentioning wave machines to push boats away from the coast or even sending asylum seekers to be held on a South Atlantic island. But what is the state of immigration, legal and illegal, at the moment? Well, joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is Robert McNeil, Deputy Director at the Oxford Migration Observatory, which digs into all this. Now, Robert, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. One of the complaints is that the system is broken because large numbers of people are arriving in the UK without any authorisation, really large numbers. Is that true? Well, I think it's important to remember that large numbers of people always arrive in the UK without authorisation. I mean, that's because there isn't a route into the UK for people to claim asylum without uh, having, without entering either via clandestine means or in a way which is not, um, you know, strictly uh, the way that one sh- that one is expected to do so. Um, that you can't get an asylum visa, for example, from another kind of, in order to bring you into the UK. The only way that you can come into the UK as a refugee is under the resettlement programme, uh, which you know, the government does, uh, the government makes a, a lot of, uh, of noise about doing very well, which they do. It's, uh, but, um, but that programme is extremely small in comparison to the number of people that come to the UK to claim asylum. Now, obviously, the other thing 
is that you have large numbers of people who are not claiming asylum but who are living in the country as irregular migrants. Um, broadly speaking, the, the view is that these people tend to be more likely to arrive um, with legitimate, you know, via legitimate routes, so for example, you know, on a tourist visa or even a work visa or a student visa, and then overstay those visas rather than necessarily turning up via clandestine means. How big a problem is that really? I mean, it's something that comes up a lot in focus groups. You get a, a, a lot of rhetoric around, especially election times. It's something that really chimes with people. But in terms of the impact on the country, how big is that? How, how big is the number of people claiming asylum or the number of people living, uh, the number of people coming to the country as irregular migrants? Uh, as irregular migrants. Well, it's impossible to note. That's part of the problem with this. This is an uncountable population. These are people who don't participate in the surveys that allow us to understand um, the scale of the migrant population. And the only way of working it out, well, the only way, the way that people try to work this out is using something which is called the residual method, which is basically working out how many people there are in the country and then working out how many people are using services in the country and drawing a conclusion from that. But one of the big problems with that is that if we don't, is that, I mean, the last time that there was a, a proper version, a proper uh, sort of uh, investigation into how many people there actually were in the country, which was the 2011 census, um, was now 10 years ago. So understanding even what the size of the UK's population is now is not, is not really good enough. And all of, the, all of the estimates that we've seen up until quite recently of the irregular migrant population of the UK have been based on data from the 2001 census. Only recently have we seen some, some estimates that have come from uh, the Pew Charitable Trust and, um, and the GLA, which have tried to estimate the size of the UK's irregular migrant population. And those are unfortunately unreliable at best. Um, those, the numbers that they've put forward don't necessarily work if you scrutinise them in, in great detail. Okay, then. I mean, one of the things that's used quite often, people talk about, is net migration, Robert. The idea yeah. of, you know, are we, are we filling up as a country or are there people leaving as well at the same time? Now, taking everything you've said into account about how there are maybe areas we simply know nothing about, can you get a sense of net migration at all? Well, yeah, I mean, so net migration is calculated by, based on exactly what you're talking about there, the, the number of people turning up versus the number of people who are, who are leaving. Now, there are, again, there are challenges with calculating that, which is that up until very recently, that's been worked out using the International Passenger Survey, which, is a, which was designed as a travel and tourism survey in the 1960s. And it's literally people, you know, people asking questions with clipboards at ports of entry into the, into the UK. I say clipboards, it's more digital these days. But that, and it, so that's the, the kind of key source of analysis from which people are able to actually calculate how many people are arriving and how many people are leaving. And because it's a survey, it's been extremely limited in, yeah, I mean, there are very substantial uh, margins of error associated with it. So, and the number of people who, I mean, it's a very large survey. They interview about a quarter of a million people a year. Um, but the quarter of a million people, of course, when you compare it to the, the hundred million or so people who cross the UK border every year, is very small. And of that quarter of a million people who they interview, only a very, very small minority are either immigrating to or emigrating from the UK. So the margins of error associated with those net migration statistics are extremely high. And the Office of National Statistics has had considerable problems and has actually downgraded the quality of its, of its net migration statistics recently to experimental statistics and, in the, and is moving away from using this methodology for actually working things out. So they've had to make a number of corrections um, to what they consider to be the actual rate of net migration to the UK 
it is, I mean, it's a relatively, it's an okay measure. I mean, the way that they've been doing it, it's not, it's not, it's not disastrous, but it's not very good for giving you precise information about what's been going on. And of course, with the Conservative government's introduction of the net migration target in 2010, 2011, um, the, you know, the, there was such a profound focus on net migration that this particular data set, which was, as I say, sort of inadequate at best, um, became extremely important, um, as I say. So now the ONS is moving yeah. away from using that, but it means that we don't have a very precise uh, understanding of the level. What we can say is that net migration to the UK is relatively high. I mean, we're talking about in excess of a quarter of a million people per year. Um, it, I think it was about 290,000 net uh, at the end of 2019. Obviously, things are very, very different in the uh, in the COVID era. Um, and understanding that net migration, also, I mean, it's also important to remember that the people, I mean, net migra- migrants aren't one homogenous group by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. And so that net migration is made up of lots and lots and lots of different component parts. Um, uh, and much of that is people that the UK is extremely dependent on. Yeah. Um, and only a very, very small part of that. Uh, I mean, only, I mean, like, one has to look at this in terms of immigration rather than net migration, but only about 5% of immigration to the UK yeah. is people claiming asylum. And, and with that taken into account, looking ahead to the migration bill, we know it's had a bit of a tough time in the House of Lords. What is the government proposal to, to change things? Well, I mean, the, the key thing that they're going to change is the end of free movement. I mean, obviously, that, uh, with, with Brexit, so everybody essentially is going to have to, um, is going to have, to have some form of, uh, of permission to come to the country as opposed to being able to just come and go as they please, essentially. Um, and that includes EU and non-EU migrants. And they're also, I mean, one of the things that they are doing is reducing the salary threshold for non-EU migrants um, and also the skills threshold threshold for non-EU migrants and then increase but obviously that I mean considering that there wasn't a salary threshold or a skills threshold for EU migrants before that that's obviously being introduced for those people if they're coming to work in the UK and that's so that's obviously likely to reduce the number of EU migrants. That, that, that's the, the, the point process, system that the point that's system, the point system, system yeah. exactly, well, do, yeah. does that work I mean it works in some parts or they say it works in Australia is it appropriate to the UK situation? I mean, a points-based system is a very common way of, of doing things. Um, it, I mean, realistically, this isn't the same as the Australian points-based system insofar as an, the Australian points-based system allows you to trade various different types of uh, of, um, of, uh, sort of skill or, or, or way of acquiring points against others. This requires you at a minimum to have a job offer. It requires you at a minimum to get paid a certain amount of money. Um, there are ways around some of the some of the income thresholds. For example, if you have a PhD or if you're uh, or if you're going into a shortage occupation, then you don't necessarily need to earn quite as much. But in Australia, you don't necessarily have to have a job offer if you are if you fulfil the right criteria in terms of being of having certain skills. You may be able to get in. Um, but Australia, of course, is not focused on reducing net migration in the way that the UK has been for quite some time. Australia actually has a policy of essentially increasing the size of its population yeah. and, the skills, and the skills of its population rather than trying to reduce it. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.